0: reality, defend the gospel, and and we've been saying that, as we've been studying the book up until this point, that Paul really has two reasons why he wrote this letter. The first one is that he is seeking to give a defense of the gospel— Especially in a city like Rome, where the city is highly intellectual, where they're going to face a large amount of persecution, and not just physical persecution, but religious and intellectual persecution, that Paul is seeking in some way to help give a kind of apologetic to what christ has done and how god has chosen to save and redeem his people and so so paul's writing this letter to give them really a a a strong apologetic on how the gospel works and how how they can approach both the morality of human beings and how god responds to that lack of morality but then also how god chose to save and so Obviously, the first and foremost reason he wrote the letter was to give that defense, but the second reason why is because he hadn't visited them yet. I, am I dying there? I don't know what happened there. Well, I don't need it. Um, if, right, Paul's writing this letter to say, hey, look, here's, here is the deal, right? I'm, I I haven't visited you for some particular reasons, right? Not having to do with whether i like you or not and not whether to do with whether i'm worried about having to defend the gospel when i come to rome because of the intellectual elite that live there the primary reason paul was saying that he hadn't been there yet is because god himself had not allowed him to visit yet because of the job that god had given him to do in sharing the gospel and planting churches to, with gentiles and because a church had already been established in rome paul says look i, I can't necessarily go there and visit immediately even though I would love to because there's so many places that need to have new churches started. There's so many places in the Roman world that need to hear the gospel and so I need to go to those cities and start working to establish churches there so that they might know and hear who Christ is. But I'm not afraid to come to Rome because of what people might say to me and how I might be challenged by the intellectual elite of Rome, and we said that ultimately, right, that kind of came to a head in verse 16, which we said is the theme of the entire book of Romans. Let me read that to you For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul goes, look, look, I'm going to write this letter to show you that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's why. It is the power of our God for salvation. That the gospel message, right, is not something to be ashamed of. It's not something that we need to repackage and, and create some good public relations for. It's not something that needs special marketing now. That, that the message itself contains the power in which God chose to save his people, That the message itself is good for salvation. It's strong at persuading those who are hard-hearted and stiff-necked towards God. That it's strong and mighty to save. That it is strong enough to reconcile broken relationships. That it's strong enough to heal those who are hurt and in the trappings of sin that they're enslaved to it. That the gospel can heal and move in such a way. That is what Paul sees the gospel doing. And so he says, look, this is This is why I plant churches. This is why you exist as a church. I am not afraid of what God has called me to do. And then the entire rest of the letter is him gonna be laying out that defense of why the gospel is the most important and powerful message that has ever existed. And so I want you guys to think about this question as we start looking at the text that Joel read for us earlier. When you are talking to somebody about God, so, so just pause and, and, and think about yourself here for a second. When you are talking to somebody about God or when you are sharing what Jesus has done in your life or when you are attempting to, to share the gospel with somebody, when you are attempting to do evangelism, whatever, whatever terminology you want to use to describe that, okay, when you are doing that, What is your starting point? Where is your framework? Where where are you starting with that person that you're talking to? Okay, because I would imagine that most of us in this room are going to have the same. in common, because it tends to be the theme that kind of runs through the, the church in America. It's kind of running through the church at large, worldwide, but especially in the United States. And then in particular in our church, because we are younger, it definitely is a trend that I see within the church, and is where we start with this, right? We tend to default when explaining who God is and what He's done with the love of God. That tends to be where we start. Oh, God is love. God loves you. God cares you. Don't you know how much God loves you? For God so loved the world. Right? We, we have all these different verses that we can kind of run to. And it's not necessarily a terrible thing. Right? I, I, you know, don't hear me kind of starting as we look at the text today saying, oh, you know, talking about the love of God is a bad thing. Not at all. Right? The problem is, is God certainly does love his creation. God most certainly does love you. And he demonstrated that in sending his own son to die on your behalf on the cross as a propitiation, or as a substitution for your sin. But here's the thing. That's not where Paul starts his letter. When Paul begins to start out this great defense of the good news of what Christ has done, he doesn't start first with the love of God. He starts with this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. That word wrath, there in the Greek is this Greek term called orge, okay? And what it it actually means in the Greek was just this idea of like strong passion, strong emotion. And the word, kind of like things tend to happen in language, kind of evolved over time because the most... Um, commonly strong emotion that people tend to display is anger or wrath. And so the word kind of moved from just being a a word to describe emotions to being this word that described intense anger or wrath. Um, It's a natural impulse or desire or disposition that came to signify anger in the end. And, And so here's where I want us to kind of start today. Right? And I'm already seeing some of your alls faces, like you're already uncomfortable, and that's okay. It's, a, it's good to be uncomfortable, right? Okay? The, the, the wrath of God. We, we need to talk about that. Because here's the reality, right? It's not something we like to talk about. And as I said earlier, we think we need to run public relations for God— and, and, you know, some of you PR majors are like, yeah, it is kind of like that, you know? Like, you know, we think that we need to kind of not focus on certain parts of Scripture to make Jesus seem more appealing to people, right? We need to package God as being safe, Right? And so if we talk about the wrath of God, God's not safe because, hey, that's, hey, that, that's kind of mean. People don't, people don't want a mean, angry God. Right? Let's, let's just talk about the good side of God, the, the loving side, the, the side where Christ did all this work for us. Let's not talk about the wrath of God at all. But the problem with that, you see, is that God doesn't present himself that way to us in the Scriptures. That if we open up the Bible and we study it in its totality— We see that he is a God who loves and cares for his creation, but he's also a God who hates sin, rebellion, and injustice. That he is a God that both created and spoke the universe into existence and uniquely and wonderfully made you, and he's also the God that hates your sin and hates your rebellion. And so when talking about and presenting God to anyone, both both to ourselves, but then to those around us, to an unbelieving world around us. We must take care to present God as he really is. Here's something I want you to think about. God's wrath is not necessarily this thing to be afraid of intellectually dealing with. I know that we have a tendency to want to avoid it, but God's wrath, guys, is not a bad thing. Let me, let me explain to you why, why this is the case. Think about this. In Scripture, over and over again, when you see God pouring out His wrath, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, His wrath is always focused on evil, wickedness, and injustice. Every time. I, I, I cannot find anywhere in the Scripture where you see the Bible talking about the wrath of God being poured out on something because someone was good. It's like, oh, you know, David was really great, and God just decided for no reason to punish him. Right? Even when you see guys like Job in the Scriptures who are called righteous in the eyes of God, or that they might in some way be called godly, right? you don't see God super excited about all the trials that Job faces. He allows them to happen to teach a greater purpose to both Job and his people. But when you see the full wrath of God on display, it is always focused in on wickedness and injustice. And so the question then becomes for you and I is why are we so troubled by the wrath of God? Why why do we hate it so much? Why Why do we find it as something we need to avoid talking about? Why is it something that we maybe don't even necessarily believe in? Why is it something that we refuse to tell other people about? Why would we refuse to tell somebody, hey, look, Jesus died for your sin because you are under his wrath without what Christ did for you. The reason you and I struggle so much with the concept of wrath is because our experiences with anger and wrath tend to be shown to us by wicked and unrighteous men and women that most of our examples of seeing someone act out in anger or wrath was done in a way that was not godly. And so maybe, you know, I remember as a kid, right, I had this babysitter, right, her name was Mrs. Dove, and I can use her name now because she's gone on to live with the Lord, and it's kind of ironic that her name was Mrs. Dove because she was not peaceful, right? Like, And and some of you guys are going to, like, be shocked at what I'm about to tell you. Like, when we misbehaved, she would have us go outside and pick the stick that we were going to get beat with, right? Some of you guys are like, that's why Kevin's so messed up all the time. Yes, that's part of my childhood. So she got there, and you better pick a good one, because if you didn't pick a good one, she was going to pick one that was ten times worse than the one that you picked. And so you better at least try to pick one that you know is going to hurt a little bit. My sister's smiling in the back, by the way, because she never got spanked, but she— Witness me get spanked by this woman many, many times. Okay, now here's the deal. That woman later in life, after she had a heart attack, apologized to me. Saying that there were many things in her life that had happened, and she would often take her anger out on us in ways that was not appropriate. Right? So as a young child, right, I'm talking ages three to probably eight, when I was babysat by this woman, the example of wrath and anger laid towards me was overreaction— selfish, motivated by my babysitter, right? And so I, be, I came to fear it, right? When I would see someone become wrathful or vengeful or angry, right? I would see that in my dad or my grandfather sometimes, right? I would fear it, right? Because it was often motivated by the selfishness of the person that was there, right? Some of you may remember parents or teachers exploding, sometimes wrongly, and you end up fearing anger and wrath because it's— exercised in a way that is not godly. But these experiences show us what anger in a sinful manner often gets manifested as, but anger in and of itself is not a terrible thing. Wrath in and of itself is not a terrible thing. Let me give you some examples, right? Okay, a couple couple hundred years ago in this country, there was a group of people specifically in the Northeast that led a movement called the Abolitionist Movement. They were angry and, you know what word I want to use here, frustrated at the injustice of the American government enslaving African Americans in this country. And so they began this movement to fight and push back against it. And it, I mean, it led to, right, rebellions, fires, that there were things that the abolitionist movement did out of anger because of their anger at the injustice that occurred. Right? When, you, when we look back and we study the history of World War II, right, there is a righteous anger and indignation that swells up inside the hearts and the conscience of most people because of what Nazi Germany did to an entire race of people, the Jews. Right? We look at that and we say look, this is horrific what happened here, right? The injustice that occurred here. And so the wrath and the anger that occurred later on and punishing those that participated in those actions during World War II would actually be something you would say, it was actually good that those men were punished for the crimes that they had committed against innocent men, women, and children. That wrath and anger in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's more so the motivation and the object of the wrath in the first place. And so wrath from evil and wicked men is scary, but anger and wrath focused against evil is actually always a good thing. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to really live in a world that lets evil go unchecked. I'm not interested in that. There's enough of that that goes on and gets celebrated as it is, I don't want to live in a place where there is no justice. I don't want to live in a world where there's no standard. I don't want to live in a world where people celebrate things like murder and incest and rape and stealing. I don't want to live in that place. And most of the human race, although they would deny right, the ability for God to judge and set those standards, still agree with those same standards. And so what does Paul say— that God has focused His wrath against? It's not like God is some bitter, angry, you know, parent who's upset because their kids have some way encroached on their personal space or whatever they're doing. He's not the bitter, angry person that's just been broken up with. He's not the angry friend whose best friend's doing something with someone else. Look at what God's wrath is focused against. It says it's focused against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men, and those who suppress the truth by their actions. That's what God's wrath is focused against. God's not angry at mankind because of their love for one another. God's not angry at mankind for doing good things. God is angry and wrathful at wicked men and women because of their unrighteous sin and rebellion. See God exists and created the universe the universe to operate best within his standards, rules and law, and operating outside those parameters not only is rebellious towards God, but it also suppresses the truth of what is right. It denies God his rightful place as ruler. And it also breeds injustice and evil. And so God is just and good. therefore, he displays his wrath, anger, displeasure, whatever word you want to use towards injustice and rebellion, and it's actually a good thing. It's a good thing that God doesn't love sin. It's a good thing that God doesn't love injustice. It's a good thing that God doesn't love wickedness but hates it. Now, herein lies the problem though, right? Because most would be like, yeah, it is good that God doesn't love wickedness. It is good that God doesn't love injustice. It is is good that God hates sin. It is good that God doesn't want to see people treated poorly or unfairly or, or unjustly. The problem is, is that you and I, as human beings, stand condemned before him. Because all of us start on the same playing field as sinners and rebellious towards Him. Now, I'm not personally attacking you this morning. But I am telling you a universal truth taught in Scripture is that you and I are broken and defective when it comes to fulfilling the original design that God created us for, which is to worship and enjoy Him and obey Him, that is what God intended for us to be, and that we have broken that design. Therefore, we are in open rebellion, and not only are we in open rebellion, but we're doing the very things that God hates. We're unrighteous, we support injustice. And we suppress the truth. Some of us do it on purpose, some of us do it subtly, but we all do it. Everyone in this room does it. And so Paul says, all right, I'm just going to lay it all out for all of you guys. All of us start on the same playing field. God's wrath is pointed at you and I. Because of our sin, because of our wickedness. Now, some of you in this room are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, okay, and, and this is what Paul anticipates that seems awfully unfair of God to be to be wrathful toward the entire human race because not, not everyone knows God, right You know like you know you know just because Paul is Jewish and, and, and grew up knowing the scriptures does not mean that everyone has that same advantage, and so it's kind of unfair of God to assume a level of obedience and love and performance of the human race if Most of the human race doesn't even know that God exists. And and so Paul kind of anticipates this argument. And I hear variations of this objection all the time. Like, especially when I'm on, on college campuses and we start sharing the gospel with people, and when I start telling them about the wrath of God and, and how God, that we are sinners in need of salvation, right, most of the people are kind of like, well, you know, that sounds like a good message, and like, I, I, that's cool that you believe that Jesus did that, but, you know, what about the people in the Amazon who have never heard this message before? Like, well, first of all, I'm talking to you, and you're standing outside Turlington Plaza, so let's... Let's focus on this right now. But this is what I always love to do. So if you ever have a friend that does this, this is a great response to that. I just always say, you know what? God loves the people in the Amazon, and I think he might be calling you to go tell them about his love for them. Would you be willing to do that? And inevitably, the response I get every time is, I like, know, oh you know, I'm in, I'm in college right now, or not, you know, I don't feel like doing that. And I say, so you don't really care about the people of the Amazon, You're trying to draw attention away from the conversation you and I are having right now, which is your need to deal with what Paul is saying is that you are sinful, rebellious, and unrighteous, deserving of God's wrath. You're trying to deflect the attention of the argument, and I'm here to tell you, you can't deflect, you need to actually deal with what Paul said, because it's either true or it's not. Either you are sinful and in open rebellion towards God, deserving of his wrath, or you aren't. But the people of the Amazon are sitting in the same position you are, and I'm talking to you right now. Let's talk about you. Then we can talk about how you can, in some way, leverage missions so we can go reach the people on the Amazon. But we're talking about you right now. See, this is where, as, as, as human beings, the biggest problems with the teaching of Christ really come to a head. Because here's—I'm going to let you guys in on a secret this morning. The Bible is not a self-help book. It's not. If you are here this morning to get a pick-me-up, if you are here this morning to, in some way, have your emotional psyche lifted up, the Bible can, in some ways, right, encourage you, but the purpose of the Bible is not an emotional self-help book. It's God's revelation— to you and I on who God is. See, a good self-help book would tell you, hey, yeah, you're broken or you're defective or you're messed up or whatever else, kind of like we're seeing right here in Romans chapter 1. But then it would go on to tell you this, but you're able to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Right? You just need to work harder. You need to become more organized. You can have your best life now if you just do these 10 things. Right? You talk about all these different things that you can do to make your life better. And then you'll be a happier person, you'll you'll have a better life, you'll have better friendships. If you just, and this is the famous one right now, this is popular psychology 101. Just believe in yourself and have high self-esteem. Right? That's what we've been told over the course of the last 20 or 30 years in psychology, that you just need to have a stronger and better view of yourself and everything else will be better around you. If that's what you want to hear, the Bible is not the place to hear that. And so when you start telling people you're sinful, broken, and defective, and you can't fix it on your own, that's where the problem enters. Right? All of us know we're defective in some way. Right? All of us have had—how many of you guys have ever tried to do a New Year's resolution in here before? Okay, like 50, 60% of the room. And some of you guys were so embarrassed that you did this. Because you're like, well, yeah, I've done one, but it lasted literally 36 hours. Right, the longest I've ever gone is three weeks with a New Year's resolution. Three weeks. Right? Because inevitably, what I'm doing when I start a New Year's resolution is who am I relying on to fix this problem in my life? Myself. Well, who's the one that had all the problems to begin with? Me. So I'm relying on the deadbeat who had bad habits to all of a sudden fix the bad habits. Doesn't tend to work out super well. Okay, and so the Bible tells you and I, look, you're defective, you're jacked up, you're sinful, and you can't fix yourself, and you're deserving of the wrath of God. See, even in popular Christianity, there's all these books out there that will tell you that you can, you can do all these things to overcome right, if you just have enough faith, or if you just, you know, serve enough, or give enough, or do all these different things, right, popularly coined as the prosperity gospel, or prosperity theology. If you want to know how I feel about it, I hate it. It's not the gospel. It's not the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. If you grew up in an environment where you were told that God would give you all you ever wanted if you just simply had faith and trust in Him, you went to a church that preaches heresy. If you went to a place that told you you could overcome and do all these different things if you simply had enough faith, that is not what the Scripture teaches. Yes, the Scripture teaches that we will move mountains if we have enough faith, but guess who's moving the mountains? God, not you. Right? Here's, Here's the story of the Scripture. God created, man rebelled, we stand condemned, and he overcame, not you. That that is the message of the scripture. He overcame for you, not you overcome to get to him. And so it's not unfair, right, for God to say you stand condemned. Deserving of his wrath, because the reality is, is if we're honest with ourselves in here this morning, all of us know that we're sinners. We may not use that terminology, but all of us know that we're unable to fix the defectiveness that we see in ourselves. And so Paul says, look, it's not unfair that God would condemn even those that don't know him. Here's why. Look at verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. That's referring to the entire world. Okay, so those in the Amazon, those in the 1040 window, those in South Asia, those in Russia, those in India, those in Africa, those in Australia, right? God is talking about everyone here. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So, Paul's response to that objection what about the people in the Amazon? What about those that never hear about God? It's like it's not, it's not a good enough excuse. That God has given us all the information we ever need to know that He exists and we exist for His glory simply by looking at creation. Go with me to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I love how John starts this gospel because he's talking about Christ and what Christ has done. Yet Look at what he says. In the beginning was the Word. Okay, the Word there is talking about Jesus. Okay? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Meaning that Jesus was a part of the creative process that we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Now, Throw Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 up there for me, right? Here's what the Old Testament says about creation. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the skies are His handiwork and that we see His glory on display any time we experience being outside in creation. That we can look at creation and say, this is fantastic. Growing up, I was not a follower of Jesus, nor did I really believe in God, at least not the God of the Bible but I enjoyed the outdoors and spent a lot of time fishing amongst other outdoor activities. Now, never once in the 20 years before I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, did I sit on the beach, sit on the top of a mountain after a hike, camp out in the woods, and sit down and think to myself in the quiet and the solitude, man, this is all random. What stupid luck that this beauty just happened to form itself into this perfect ecosystem where these animals could survive off of one another and that the plant life and the vegetation would support life and that it creates, you know, this perfect environment where... The harmful radiation from the sun is somehow deflected by our atmosphere, and that oxygen is given off by the very plants that we need, that also need us to survive as well. Man, like, isn't it just great that all of this is so random? And have you ever sat on the beach and watched the sunset and thought, "This is the ugliest, most random thing I've ever seen"? No one's ever been in the northern part of North America and saw the northern lights and thought, "Man, this is ugly." This is stupid. Why would this happen? No, because when you take a minute to turn off the television and step out to the cre- creation, you see the beautiful handiwork of what God has done. You see how intricate it is. You see how in-depth it is. You see the magnitude of how things work together to stay the way they are. I love talking with some of the really, really smart people in our church who are scientists and how they talk about how their studies in their particular field have led them to a deeper faith in God, not the lack thereof, because they say, well, I can see the beauty of how God works this out. Not only do I get to understand how our universe works, but I get to see how God designed it, and it's awesome. And Paul says, look, for the last 6,000 plus years of written human history, we can look and see that all a man or a woman need do is walk out and look at creation, and that is enough to show them that God exists. As I sit on the beach watching the sunset in amazement, here's what Paul says. Kevin, the reason you felt overwhelmed while you were sitting on that beach is because god created it and in your soul you are worshiping him and seeing it because his creation is declaring his glory to you that it's reflexive that i can't even prevent it from happening because the heavens themselves are declaring the glory of god There is no one that can claim it is unfair for God to be wrathful because everyone can know God exists through looking at creation. This is what theologians call the natural revelation of God. Right, That God has given every human being the capacity to reason and with that reason to look at creation and say, yeah, God did this. So if what paul's saying is true if we are without excuse then what other objection could we possibly raise that if we're deserving of the wrath of god and we have no excuse because we can know he exists because of creation then what other excuse could we possibly raise and so paul's going to answer that one next and that's going to be the focus of the remainder of our time and then all of next week and the most common one you'll hear from people is this well i'm not a christian but i'm a pretty good person I'm not not a Christian, but I'm not not evil. Overall, I'm a pretty good person. And Paul's going to say, There is no such thing. There is no such thing as a pretty good person. As a matter of fact, if you remember the teachings of Jesus, do you remember when the Pharisees come and talk to him and they call him good teacher? Does anybody remember what Jesus' response to them is? He said, There is no one good but God. Why do you call me good? Right, he's, he's teaching them something right there about his divine nature. Right, what he's saying is like, if you can realize I'm good, if you can honestly say that about me, there's no one good but God. You're saying something here. And so look at what Paul says in verses 21 through 23 about good people. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That that mankind and their quest to make the world better (laughs) and figure out everything... Claim to be wise, but actually become fools. Because everyone started out at least knowing that God exists, and over time, as men have learned more and, and grown, they've began to even deny the very existence of God. See we're no different than people of 2,000 years ago. We claim to be wise all the time, and we are not. And notice what Paul says happens to men and women as they create ideologies and philosophies to try to explain life and what happens. They claim to be wise, they become futile, and they're thinking, let me kind of try to find a way to redefine that for you. They become self-defeating in their worldviews that their own worldviews crumble in on themselves most of the time when they talk about this. So I, I shared this with you guys a couple weeks ago. The most common one that we hear today in this post-Christian culture that we live in in America now is that morality is relative and that there is no absolute truth. And I always tell you, I love when people tell me that because I just say, you're too smart to believe that, and they look at me like I'm crazy. And I say, well, because you're claiming something absolute while well, claiming that there is no absolute. It's philosophy 101, the law of non-contradiction, that they are immediately already defeating their own statement by making the statement that they've made, right? This is one of those things where it sounds really good, but it's not so great. Let me share a story with you. About eight years ago, I was watching a debate between this guy. Uh, He was a pastor out in Seattle named Mark Driscoll, and there was a woman there as well, and she had a ministry called Hookers for Christ. You can't make this stuff up. And then... Uh, there was this guy there who was a bishop from some church um, organization in the United States, and there was this guy who still is around today. You'll probably see some of his crazy Looney Tune books named Deepak Chopra, okay? If you guys like him, he's a loony. He's he, insane asylum. Dude, the guy's nuts, okay? And, and so anyway, they're having this debate, and they're talking back and forth, and they're having this conversation. And at one point during the conversation... Deepak Chopra is like, you know, I, you know, I have this major problem with your worldview, Mark, because, you know, you've put all your trust into the words of some ancient document. And, and Mark looked at me and goes, no, my, my trust is in the person that that ancient document is about. The book itself doesn't save me. The person that the book is about saves me. And, and so you kind of like see this rumbling, and this guy gets this weird look on his face. And then Deepak Chopra looks at him and goes, you know, you are the problem of what is wrong with religion in America. And he looks at him and he says this. I am trying to partner with those who are looking for truth, and I'm running away from those who found it. Okay, you guys had the same response I did. The room's like, oh my gosh, Yeah! Right? Not, not thinking about the implications of what just has been said, even though like, it's alliterative and it sounds really cool. Let me translate what Deepak Chopra just said for you. I don't ever want to learn anything. Right? The statement is this. I am looking to partner with those who are looking for truth and running away from those who found it. Meaning if anyone actually has answers, please don't share them with me. I don't want to know them. Okay, now... Deepak Chopra works for a university. A place where you go to what? Learn things. Right? Like the University of Florida is built upon what? You come to learn truth about things. How many of you guys are engineering students in here? Raise your hand, please. Okay, you're liars. Like 90% of you are engineers, okay? I meet Like everyone I meet, right? I'm an engineering student, okay? All right, I would prefer that you not take Deepak Chopra's advice with engineering, okay? If you're going to be designing buildings or building computers or building bridges or designing uh, systems that are going to get water when it floods out of the, air, the way so that we don't flood, I would prefer you learn real truth, real science that actually, you know, does things, not just your make-believe things you want to build. How many of you guys are studying to be a doctor or a nurse in here? Okay. Like, another half the room. Very good. Okay, please actually learn things. Okay? Learn, like, actual medical science so that if I ever have to go to the hospital and you're my nurse, you're not just making it up as you go. Right? See, see the reality of how this, this works? Right? We think something like that sounds so good and we think, man, he's this really, really wise, sage-like religious guy. Right? He's He's... Deepak Chopra is put on the news all the time as the new age of spiritual thinking in the United States. He wouldn't even get through a basic 100-level philosophy class. Right? Because his views, though they sound good, are self-defeating and futile. Right? The wiser we think we become as men in our own ideologies and philosophies, the more self-defeating and unwise and foolish we become. And not only do we become self-defeating, but look at the last thing that Paul says happens to men and women when this happens. Their hearts are darkened. The more we think we know about life, the more we think we have it all figured out, the more we become darkened to the truth. The less we look to God in our daily lives and the less we worship him. Not only do men not Worship God. But look at what ultimately they end up doing. Because most people that you would say that do not follow Jesus Christ, do not have a personal relationship with Him, do not know Him as Lord and Savior would say, Yeah, yeah, I don't worship God. I don't worship anything. But look at what is true of the human race. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Claiming to be free and wise, they began to worship creation instead of creator. Think about the implication of what Paul is saying here, guys. What he's saying to you, what he's saying to me. You and I will worship something. You will. It's in your very design as a human being to worship God. It's why God created us, to reflect His glory, to rule as He would rule, to love as He would love, to have dominion and authority over the earth so that we might reflect His glory and worship Him. That is why God created us, for His glory. And if you aren't worshiping Him, you're worshiping something he created. Every time. If it isn't God, it's something he created. Sex, food, entertainment, people, intellectualism, physical image, sports, self. The list goes on and on about the things that people attach their value to that people find their identity in, and every single time, if it's not rooted in the Creator, it's rooted in something He created. These aren't just things. These aren't just vices. If you have an addiction to something, if you have a problem with something, it's not just a vice. It's not just a problem. It's an object of your affection and your worship, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1. And I would submit to you that if you can think on your life right now, what you consume the most is probably what you worship. You may not want to hear that, but it's the truth. What you tend to consume the most with your thoughts, with your attention, with your actions, that tends to be the thing you worship the most. And so here is my question for you. Is it God? If it isn't, then think about the lunacy of what you are choosing, according to Paul, you are exchanging the glory of the God of the universe for created things. Let me give you an example. Right, my wife's sitting right here. She's beautiful, by the way. She looks great in her new skirt. I actually noticed it this morning. It's like, hey, I haven't seen that this morning. It looks really beautiful on. Those of you guys that don't know me, that's kind of a big deal. (laughs) Those of you guys that don't know me, I'm wearing a polo of my favorite sports team today instead of a jersey. I'm evolving. I'm growing up. (laughs) I love my wife. She's beautiful. I'm married to her. I can spend time with her. I get to go to sleep at night with her in the same bed as me, even though it drives her crazy because I'm crazy in my sleep, and she gets no sleep because of me. She still chooses to stay in the bed anyway. The beauty of marriage is that I get to live this out and see with her. Now, I get to experience that and know it and be a part of that. How crazy would it be if I decided all of a sudden, Jackie, I just want you to stay in the other room. I'm going to hang out with your shadow. Some of you guys look at me like you're crazy. The Bible uses that as an illustration of what you and I do each and every day when we choose to exchange relationship and worship of God for things that he created. That we choose to worship the shadow of him instead of him himself. Because in creation, right, here's the thing. I'm not saying that it's not attractive. God created things, as we were talking about earlier, with beauty in them with attractiveness in them, with attention to detail. So these things are attractive, but to put them as the supreme thing in your life is to choose to worship the shadow instead of the substance. Some of you guys would want to have me committed if you heard, yeah, Kevin's hanging out with Jackie's shadow. And yet we choose every day to exchange that same glory and relationship with god we worship sex which god created we worship entertainment which is creativity which god created we worship sports which god created we worship enjoying the outdoors and loving mother earth god created it we worship people, most of us in this room, struggle with that on some level. We care way too much what other people think of us. We allow them to paralyze us and run our lives. They aren't your God. God created them. That's what you're exchanging for the glory of God. And I'm here to tell you this. You're worshiping something and you will not find true satisfaction. And glory outside of him You will not find it Outside of the creator So guys here's the bad news And you need to hear it You need to know this about yourself And your friends need to know it about themselves Your grandmothers and your parents Need to know this about themselves You and I Are deserving of the wrath of God Because we exchange The substance of God For the shadow of God Every day and not only do we exchange that, but then we openly flaunt it and celebrate it. That's why Paul says, thinking that we've become wise, we actually become foolish and futile. And in that, whatever it is you're worshiping that is above God, guess what you're doing in that moment? You are putting on display for something, someone else and in your own heart that that thing is better than God is. Therefore, doing exactly what Paul says is true in Romans chapter one, suppress the truth. That's why we're deserving of God's wrath. You and I are both guilty of suppressing the truth of who God is and what he's done. Both of us, because we exchange the glory of the immortal God for shadows. And yet, even though... We're not going to get to it today in the text. The beauty of the book of Romans is that we're going to get there. God has made a way. Right? Not only are you and I deserving of God's wrath, but then God was just enough to punish us for that wrath. But here's here's the beautiful part. He chose to punish our rebellion and unrighteousness and pour out his wrath on his son instead. That his son willingly went to the cross as a substitute for you and for me. That Jesus Christ took on your sin, your unrighteousness, your rebellion, and took on the full wrath of God when he went to the cross. All your sins, past, present, future expunged. The Scripture says that God removes them as far as the east is from the west. And if you guys understand that terminology, if one person's heading east and one person's heading west, they'll never actually meet each other except on a sphere, which our planet is. But in a linear plane, they would never meet one another. That's what God has done with your sin and rebellion in Christ. And it's the most glorious news that there could ever be. Guys, the Bible is not a self-help book. It's a God-helps-you book. It's a God-saves-you book. You are not capable of saving yourself. That's why God did it for you. You're messed up. I love you but you're messed up. I tell my kids that all the time, right? Josiah, some of you guys think, he's so sweet, he's so quiet. Original sin is taught in the Bible and in the lives of our children. Yet God demonstrates his own love for you and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you are in Him, you're no longer the object of His wrath, but you have an inheritance. You are adopted as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. You are a member of His family. You will reign with Him for eternity. You will worship and know Him fully, and you will one day be given glorified bodies so that you might worship Him for eternity. Guys, that's why we're here. We're not here to have 10 lists of things that you can do to be a better Christian. We're not here to to talk about all the things we can do. We're here to talk about him, the one who did it for us. So here in a moment, we're gonna take communion, right? And what we're doing when we take communion is we're worshiping God. The communion was established by Jesus at the Last Supper so that we might worship him. And, And so what I would invite you to do is Think about seriously your sin, because clearly God takes it seriously in the book of Romans. Confess your sin, your rebellion, your distrust of God, what you're worshiping instead of Him. Confess it, ask for His forgiveness, and then come up and take communion, because you know what communion is supposed to remind you of? Christ died for your sin, you're forgiven that as you repent of that sin, instead of wallowing in it and self-pity and wanting to look for self-help, you would instead look to the only place that can provide help, him. And that you would worship Jesus for what he's done for you because he's worthy, because he's good. Because when God could have punished and pulled out his full wrath and poured it out towards you, he instead poured it out on the life of his son for your sake. Worship him and thank him for that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am unworthy to even be able to talk about the beauties and the riches of what you have done for us. When I think of the ways that I myself exchange your glory for fleeting unimportant things in this world. Brought to shame and disappointment. And yet the gospel tells me not to wallow in shame and disappointment, but instead hand it over to you, trust in you, and then joyfully submit to you in obedience and reverence. And that we might worship you fully because of what you've done. And I pray that we would be a church that's marked by two things repentance and a sincere love for you and others may that drive us so that you receive the glory and the honor that is due to your name and nothing else Lord, I thank you for your word thank you for your son thank you for your spirit we love you we ask this all in Jesus' name.